Here we go. Romans 7 is where we're going. We are embarking this morning on a three-Sunday journey in Romans chapter 7. Three Sundays it's going to take us. And so if, uh, if you're kind of doing devotionals in your life, daily devotionals, one thing you might do is make Romans 7 part of your daily devotions. That way, when you show up next Sunday and the Sunday after, you'll be soaking already in Romans 7. So you could do that. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with a statement this morning that is intended to knock you off balance. Okay? I need to knock you off balance this morning. Because the reality is, if you're like me, right now when you're sitting there, you do not realize how absolutely critical it is that you get the meaning of Romans 7. Very few of us do. And so right out of the gate, I need to knock you off balance. And I'm going to knock you off balance by exposing a gap in what you think is true about God. And this statement is going to sound a little radical. In fact, I ran this statement past my wife on Friday morning. I sat her down. I said, here's what I'm thinking about saying. I made the statement, and then she sort of looked at me, and she's like, that's a big claim, dude. That's a big, are you sure you can substantiate that claim? All right, so we'll find out. Here's the statement. I want you to think about this. When God gave his people, Israel, the law, So think the law of Moses, the Old Testament. Think Mosaic law, Moses, Ten Commandments, the ritual law, okay? When God gave his people the law, he knew that it would cause his people to sin against him more, not less. He knew this. That's a big statement, isn't it? You're probably thinking... I hope you can back that up, buddy. Okay? That's a, when God gave his people the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other elements of the Old Testament law, he knew that it was going to cause his people to want to sin more, not less. Now, where am I getting that? That statement is really just a summary of all the things that Paul has already said about the law in the book of Romans. Which is why when he gets to chapter 7, he feels like, I got to back this up. I got to substantiate some of the stuff that I've said about the law. See, a lot of if you've been around the church and you've read Romans 7, you're probably thinking, well, Romans 7 is a lot about sin. Paul's going to make some crazy statements at the end about the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the thing that I don't want to do, that's the thing I'd end up doing. And, and, and it's about, but really what Paul's doing in Romans 7 is he's going to take an entire chapter to explain a bunch of things that he said about the law. For example, I'm just going to put a slide up that summarizes a bunch of these really odd statements about the law. For example, Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Really? Knowledge of sin. The law just makes us aware of sin. That's why one verse later, Paul's going to say, and that's why the righteousness of God is manifested through the gospel, not through the law. Or how about Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Really, Paul? You saying when, when there's no law, there's no, if there's no law, there's nothing to transgress. And then Romans 5.20, this is a big one. We've spent a lot on this one. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass. It increases the trespass. And then 6.14 from a couple weeks ago, this controversial claim, believers are not under the law, we're under grace. And this one is the one, I think, that one is the one, that one with 5.20 is the one where Paul goes, okay, I gotta stop, I gotta take a whole chapter now, and I gotta defend what I'm saying. And I gotta explain it. Because imagine being a devout Jewish Christian. Remember, a lot of the Christians in Rome were Jewish converts. These were, these were uh, ethnically and religiously, and, and they identified as Jewish people who had recognized Jesus as their Messiah, converted to faith in Christ, and now they're reading a letter from a guy making those kinds of statements about their beloved Torah. And they're thinking, what are you talking about, Paul? And even among us Christians, it could cause us to go, well, wait a minute. Well, then how should we think about the Old Testament, right? What is the place of the law in Christian discipleship? Now that Christ has come and he's inaugurated the new era, what role does the law play for us? Are we bound to obey the Old Testament commandments? What, what does it mean for us? And Romans 7 is our guide. It's going to take us three Sundays. By the way, I didn't plan to say this, but I'm going to say this. This might sound odd to you, but the next two Sundays would be really, really great Sundays to invite a non-Christian. You say, really, buddy? <laughs> Listen, what Paul's going to do in the next two Sundays, he's going to give an explanation for why our hearts do what they do. And that explanatory power is unique to Christianity. So bringing someone who's new to faith, they're going to sit in here and go, okay, Christianity actually explains why I do what I do, like no other worldview. So consider inviting someone next week and the week after. But Romans 7, the entire chapter is devoted to Paul explaining the place of the law and God's purposes. And verses 1 through 6 begin the argument. So now will you look at it with me? I'm going to read this slowly, and then I'm going to give you a second to take it all in. There's a lot going on here. If you have your own Bible, look there, because I'm going to have you looking down at your own Bible, or you can look on the screen. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way 
of the written code. I want you to just take a second. Maybe even you're looking at your own Bible. Take that in. That's a lot. I'm about to summarize it in a sentence. But what we just read is so critical. Okay? And here's what I want you to know. The Apostle Paul is absolutely passionate about Christians living lives that please God. That is like his number one passion. You, your life. If you were to say, Paul, what is the absolute passion of your ministry, of your writing, even of this letter, even of this text we just read, his number one passion is that you would live a life that pleases God. And so he uses language like what you saw right there in verse six. What Paul wants for you is to live a life in the new way of the spirit. Where your li- you, the way you live your life, you're seeking the wisdom, the guidance, the power of the Holy Spirit in the way you live. That would please God. Or verse four, do you see that? Paul wants you to live a life that's fruitful, good fruit for God. He's saying the absolute passion of my life is that your life would be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When Paul wrote to that church in Rome, and if, he were, and if he were here today, he would say, what I want more than anything, River West Church, is that your lives individually and your lives corporately would bring glory to God. They would make Christ look beautiful to the community around you. People would look at the way you live and look at the way we live collectively, and they would think, wow, Jesus is really beautiful. I want to be a part of this. Lives that give evidence that the gospel is true and powerful. And here's the next statement. Because Paul is passionate about this, he is equally passionate about you dying to the law. Now you go, I don't, I don't, how did, that doesn't compute for me. How'd you get from, the, I get the first one, living lives that please God. Get it, totally. I want to live a life that pleases God. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to bear fruit. But Paul, how did you get from that to, in order to do that, you got to die to the law? What does that mean? For the sake of pleasing God, we die to his law. So we have a lot we got to figure out this morning, okay? Now, here's the thing. I've had lots of conversations with people in our church about Romans, and they're almost all encouraging, okay? People are like, this study is great. Thank you for going slow. Uh, But I have had a lot of people go, Romans is really deep, you know? I met with my mentor, my pastor mentor friend before I started preaching Romans. He's a, he's a pastor. He's about 15 years ahead of me. And I, this was like a year and a half ago. And I told him, I, th- I think I'm going to preach Romans. And, and he looked at me and he said, good luck with that, dude. <laughs> right? Because Romans is intense. And you get to a point on a Sunday, I know this, you get to a point where your brain is just full. And it's like, I can't take anymore. There's just so much going on here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this text, because actually this text, just at a logic, at a flow, at a structure, it's actually really basic. It's easy to understand. So I've got a slide that just shows you, hopefully, what you've already seen. In verse 1, Paul states a principle, and the principle is simple. He says, the law is only enforced while a person is alive. 
That makes sense. If you die, law no longer applies to you. Okay? Do I need to explain that anymore? Because if I, okay, it's pretty simple. Then what he does in verses two and three is he uses an illustration from marriage. He wants to illustrate it. And the marriage illustration is a little bit odd. I'm going to talk about it more in a minute. But the basic idea behind the marriage illustration is what we do a lot in our Christian marriages, till death do us part. It's the idea that, and this is all from Deuteronomy, marriage, you're bound in marriage until one of the two partners dies. And there's some divorce statements in the, in the New Testament. But the basic concept is one of the ways you're immediately released from the law of marriage is through death. And if one of the spouses dies, the other spouse that's living is now free to remarry. Okay? And then what Paul does in 4 to 6 is he says, now let me take all of that. Let me take the point. Let me take the illustration. And I'm going to apply it now to you. And what you'll notice is he basically makes the same point in verse 4 and verse 6. So now look back at your Bible. He says the same thing in both of those verses. He says dying to the law is the way into a life pleasing to God. You have to start there. So let me read verse 4 again. Look at it. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ... So what Paul's talking about here is when you trusted Christ, you became united with him in his death and his resurrection. That's what we learned a couple weeks ago in chapter 6. That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to Christ, and you participate in his death, in his resurrection. That's baptism, okay? And Paul says, what is the purpose of that? So that... You might belong to another, do you see that? To him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Paul's saying you died to the law so that you could bear fruit to God. You cannot bear fruit in your life unless you die to the law. You can't. And then verse six, same basic argument. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Why? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You can't serve in the new way of the Spirit until you die to the law. But still you're thinking, well, what does that even mean? What are we talking about? Dying to the law. Okay, so just stop right now and let me point something out. You can understand why this kind of language would be deeply offensive to the devout Jews in the Roman church. You got, this is where our, our lack of Jewishness is a real problem, okay? We're just a bunch of Gentiles for the most part, and we just don't get the, for the Jewish people, even the ones who had converted to Christianity, they would hear this and go, Paul, how dare you talk about God's holy righteous law like like what are you released from the captivity of torah what are you talking about paul haven't you read psalm 19 where david talks about the law like honey on his lips can you imagine right now honey just touching your lips how sweet it is and paul says that's what the law is like to me or Psalm 119, where Paul describes the law like a, like a lamp to his feet. The Jewish Christian in Rome was hearing this, and they were becoming 
deeply offended by what Paul was saying. And not only that, it becomes confusing to Christians because now we're sitting here going, wait a minute, died of the law, released from the law? What is, what is that? Doesn't River West love the Old Testament? Don't you get up regularly and preach from the Old Testament? Don't you view the Old Testament as authoritative scripture? Yes, we do. Do we have to obey the Old Testament? Is, is that a part of our Christian formation? So how do we make sense of all this? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up two observations here that I think Paul's saying about the law, and I'm hoping this is going to be really helpful. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on with me, okay? This is Romans. It's deep. It's intense. Here's the first thing I think Paul is saying about the law. Number one, Christians live in a new stage of salvation history, and in this new stage, the Mosaic law is no longer in charge. It no longer rules over God's people. So think, think covenants, okay? Think Old Covenant and New Covenant. You know how your Bible is divided into the Old Testament, New Testament. That word testament is really the word covenant. So think Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is why Paul will say under law versus under grace. He's talking about salvation history. He's describing two stages. We're now in the new stage, the new covenant, the new way of relating to God where the Holy Spirit is in us. And in this new covenant, it's new because it, it supersedes the old. The old covenant has passed away and we're now new covenant followers. And Paul says, that is the age, that is the stage that you enter in when you become a Christian and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is critical. It doesn't mean the Mosaic law is not inspired scripture, it doesn't mean it's not God's authoritative word. It doesn't mean Christians don't receive concrete ethical guidance from the Bible. We do. In fact, all of the ethical teaching, we're going to see this as we study Romans, a lot of the time when Paul would give away an ethic, he had his finger in the Ten Commandments. He would take one of the Ten Commandments and he would say, yeah, this is really true. And then he would write New Testament, New Covenant ethics for Christians. And it was because his heart and his head were formed by the Old Testament. However, the Old Testament is not authoritative over the church. It's not our law. It's not ruling us anymore. It no longer governs the church in the same way it was intended to govern Israel. And this is why, folks, this is why so many of the commandments we no longer obey. Have you ever wondered, why does it seem... There's some commandments we obey and there's other commandments in the Old Testament I read. I'm like, we don't, we don't keep that commandment, right? Did you know there's a commandment in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not wear garments with mixed fibers, okay? This is an shirt. Do you like it? That was awkward. Okay, note to self. Replace the shirt. This is a new shirt, all right? But what you, this is new in the repertoire, but here's the, I have to repent right now. I have to confess that this shirt is 10% polyester, all right, and 90% cotton. So I am in sin right now if we obey every single commandment in the Old Testament. Do you want your pastor in sin before he even starts preaching, right? Did you know there's a commandment in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? 
Do you try to obey that commandment? And did you even know that was in the Bible? Is your accountability partner holding you accountable to your baby goat boiling practices? All right? No. And that's because some of these laws were for a different age. When Israel was a national, political, religious group, they needed certain kinds of laws to help guide their life in the world. And a lot of those laws, when they pass through the filter of the new covenant, they no longer apply. But some of them stay with us and form who we are. This is easy to illustrate. When I left my parents' home at 18, their rules no longer applied to me. And it's not because some of the rules didn't make sense. A lot of my parents' rules made sense for my parents' household. And as a child growing up in their household, those rules totally made sense. We had rules about curfew. 11.59, sharp curfew. Did I always obey that? Ask me after church, all right? They never clarified what could happen 30 minutes after that. Could I sneak out my bedroom window? They left that unarticulated, all right? There were lots of rules about toilet seats in my house because we were all boys in my house, okay? We had, a, we had a rule in our house called R&L, R&L, rinse and load, all right? Parents, pay attention to this. This will help you. Rinse and load, it meant when you get it from the dinner table, rinse and load, okay? And we did it. Now, did I take all those laws when I left my parents' house and keep all those? I did not, all right? Those were for a different stage in my life. And Paul's saying, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law is inspired. It's author- it helps us, under- you can't understand the new covenant without the old, but a lot of those laws were for a different stage and a different way for the people of Israel to interact in their world. But that's not the only thing we need to understand here. Here's the second principle. You really need to think about this with me because this is big. Number two, without the Holy Spirit, the sinful human heart reacts to law by wanting to sin more, not less. That's what happens in the human heart without the Holy Spirit. This is the argument in verse 5. So look there. Look with me. Verse 5. Let's look closely now. I'll put it on the screen, but look at your Bible. For while we were living in the flesh, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, until you were united with Christ in his death, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and so you're merely flesh. You're living in the flesh. You see that there? The very first thing Paul says while we were living in the flesh. That word flesh, it's most often used by Paul to describe our pre-Christ life. It's simple human nature. It's human nature how you were born naturally. It's, it's natural, sinful human nature before Christ gets involved and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the question that Paul is going to ask is, what becomes of law when it meets flesh? What happens? And he tells us, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
And you say, what? What is Paul saying here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying when the law, the good, holy, righteous, the the law of God is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's pure, it's perfect. But something unexpected happens when that law meets sinful human flesh. And what happens is, somehow, the law partners with sin to bring about the very things that the law condemns. This is huge. You need to think about this. God's holy, perfect, righteous, good law, the second it makes contact with my sinful human flesh where the Holy Spirit is not a part of what's happening, what happens is, My flesh, my sin, it's so insidious, it kicks into gear, it takes something good and holy, and it takes it and it turns it into a desire to break the very things that that law is trying to prevent. And this is, the the typical Jewish view was that the law helped people prevent sin. That's what the Jews thought. They assumed the law helps people not sin. But Paul says, no, it's actually just the opposite. And you know what? Think about this. Israel's history was on Paul's side because the moment the people of Israel got the law, they started sinning all the way into exile. Isn't that interesting? That interesting? So I'm going to give you an illustration. This isn't even a word picture because I'm actually going to illustrate it. This is... Um, these are the matches I use to light my barbecue, okay? And the reason I like these matches is they always light. And I'm about to light this match in the sanctuary, all right? So let's hope it works. Here we go. Okay. Here, whoa, smoke. Here's what I want you to think. <gasps> Stay with me, buddy. Okay. Think about this match as the law of God, okay? In and of itself... It is good. There's a little bit of warmth. I feel the warmth. Imagine if this room was completely black. Think how much, just darkened completely, how much light this match would create. This is like a great metaphor for the law of God. But now imagine if I threw this match, which I'm not going to (laughs) do. I'm going to blow it out. That started to get uncomfortable for me. Okay, imagine I take that lit match and I throw it and you're watching it drop down, down, down to a gallon of gasoline with a piece of fabric sticking out the top. And it would immediately, boom, ignite, explode, all kinds of chaos would ensue. Okay? Now think about this. That gallon of gasoline is the human heart without the Holy Spirit with sinful passions that are dormant. So think about it. Think about a gallon of gasoline before a flame hits it. It's dormant. It's harmless. It's unignited. It's lying there, but you know the potential for fire and explosion. It's there. And what Paul's saying is what happens is the law, God's good, holy law, makes contact with the human heart without spirit, and things begin to explode. Things begin to explode. And Paul says, I need you to understand this. In fact, 
in, in the next, next Sunday, Paul's going to go even deeper into why. What is it about the flesh? You're going to have to come back next Sunday, and I'll explain more. What is it about the flesh? What is it about my heart, my fleshly, sinful human heart that causes this? But I can't say it better than Michael Bird, who said the following. Here's a little quote. I'll put this on the screen. Michael Bird said, How do you get idolatrous, immoral, pork-eating, emperor-worshipping, ignorant pagans to live and act like the people of God? Well, the Jewish view, quite understandable from a certain perspective, was to urge Gentiles to come under the wings of the Torah. But Paul's controversial argument in Romans 1 through 5 is that this does not work. What people need is not rules or religion, but a new nature. And from that new nature will flow transformed behaviors. We don't need rules, we don't need laws. We need a relationship. Amen? We don't, we don't need to be... In fact, the second you take rules and you throw them at a, at a human heart, what does your heart want to do? You want to rebel. Why is it that when I had to read books in college, I hated it, and the second I got my diploma, I wanted to read every single book on the reading list? Right? Why is that? It's because when I'm being told I have to do something, it feels different than when I get to do it. And this is why, friends, this is why Paul uses the marriage illustration. The marriage illustration is not an accident. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, don't you realize that when you died to the law, you were set free to remarry? It's the most beautiful metaphor in the New Testament. We're married to Christ as the church. Think about it. And being married to Christ changes everything. It changes the way you live. It changes what you want to do. It changes your priorities. You belong to another. He picked this illustration particularly because it was the perfect way to describe the way the church relates to Christ, our bridegroom. To be a Christian is to be married to Christ. And when you're married and you're in a relationship that's marked by love and intimacy and safety and security, any loss of freedom or independence is a joy, not a burden. Did you hear that? When you get married, do you lose some freedom? Do you lose independence? Absolutely. Is that a, do you hate that? Is that, is that a burden? No, it's not a burden. It's a joy. You, you want to lose freedom for the sake of your of your spouse. That's the beauty of the, of the metaphor. And so it is now for the Christian. Filled with the Spirit. Bride of the Savior. We now seek to fulfill the very law that our flesh hated before we had the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, that's the whole point. And that's the meaning of communion. Did you know that in the, in the book of Revelation, communion is turned into a marriage supper? Did you know this? This is what, when we take communion, what we're doing is we're, we're celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're looking forward to that day when Christ returns and finishes all that he started. And so this morning, I'm going to have you do a couple things. We're going to, I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and I'm going to say a prayer. And what I want you to do today, when you get those elements, go back to your seat. 
sit with those. And there's two things I really want you to think about, okay? The first is, think about your heart pre-Christ. The flesh heart. And remember how insidious it can be. And it's still with us a little bit. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. Some of that fleshly nature, we still fight it, right? So don't be in denial about that. Ponder it. Think about it. But most importantly, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about what an incredible privilege it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? What a privilege. We get to have a relationship with the perfect bridegroom. A relationship of joy, trust, intimacy, safety. When he asks you to step into something, don't you want to step into it joyfully? A lot of the time we do. Led by the Holy Spirit. And then when you eat that bread and drink that cup, celebrate the death of Christ that made it all possible. I'm going to pray for you. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for Romans 7. It's thick, it's deep, it's rich, it's profound. It makes big statements that we got to think about. How is it that we're being called into a new relationship where we come out from underneath Old Testament law as a ruler and we come under now grace and the gospel and a relationship with Jesus that can actually change our hearts and cause us to want to obey the very things the Old Testament was always pointing to. Thank you for that, Lord how we love you. As we eat and drink today, would you nourish and sustain us spiritually to follow Jesus in his way? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.